This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Thank you guys so much for joining us for the Hollywood Reporter Tony Nominees Roundtable. For those listening, I'm just going to introduce who I'm lucky enough to be sitting with here. Sarah Bareilles, the Best Actress in a Musical Tony nominee for Into the Woods. This is her third Tony nomination, her first for acting. Congratulations. Victoria Clark, a Best Actress in a Musical Tony nominee for Kimberly Akimbo. This is her fifth Tony nomination. She won Best Actress in a Musical in 2005 for The Light in the Piazza. <laughs> we have Jessica Chastain, a Best Actress in a Play Tony nominee for A Doll's House. This is her first Tony nomination. Josh Groban, a Best Actor in Musical Tony nominee for Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. This is his second Tony nomination. Corey Hawkins, a Best Actor in a Play Tony nominee for Top Dog Underdog. This is his second Tony nomination. And Ben Platt, a Best Actor in a Musical Tony nominee for Parade. This is his second Tony nomination. He won Best Actor in a Musical in 2017 for Dear Evan Hansen. Guys, thank you so much for being here. As I said to Jessica a moment ago, this is sort of the equivalent a fantasy football for Broadway for me. I'm so thrilled to have so many people I admire and love here. And I guess for our listeners, maybe the thing we can do in the opening round is just kind of go around the horn and talk about how you came to these roles that you're nominated for this year. Victoria, can we start with you? You have, uh, I'll, I'll tee it up a little before you give your your answer. You've done so many different kinds of amazing things over over decades in the theater but I cannot imagine that you have ever faced a challenge of playing anything like playing, uh, first, like we should say, originating this role in the musical version of Kimberly Akemba, which had originally been a play, but now uh, the gist is a young woman, 16 years old, but with a uh, affliction that causes her to age, I think about four times as fast as that, um, which means that you are going to be uh, playing somebody at a different stage of life. And just was that intimidating, exciting? How did this come about? It was incredibly intimidating. Yeah. But I love the challenge of it. And I love being able to revert back to um, the joy and the physical spontaneity of being a teenager again. That, to me, was the most appealing part about the role. It's the biggest role I've ever done. Um, I barely leave the stage. So that was also intimidating. It was sort of like, you know, if I was Tom Brady and someone said, you know, 20 years from now, someone went to Tom Brady and said, hey, I, we've got this great idea. Would you quarterback this team? But instead of one game a week, you do eight. <laughs> and instead of like half a year, your season is going to be 52 weeks. That was sort of the that was the proposal. So I did pause <laughs> for a while. Well, yeah, thinking I'm, about yeah. it, just thinking about the physical exertion, right, and the emotional exertion of this particular role, because you didn't mention, but um, this particular fictitious disease comes with a life expectancy of sixteen. So she turns sixteen in the show, so she knows she's facing her last days, and so it's been a wonderful joy slash challenge slash emotional journey to confront 
both the hilarity of that situation and the absurdity, which David Lindsay Bear and and um, Janine Tesori have set up so brilliantly. But it's also, you know, confronting the mortality issue is 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 um, deep and beautiful. Just a quick follow up on this: Is it correct that prior to this project? you were actually kind of considering hanging it up for singing and acting. I had hung it up, way up. And, um, but I mean, I was doing film and television and really enjoying that. But I, um, <laughs> do, doing what we do is so athletic. It's, we're really elite athletes. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put it out there and say oh. that. I mean, well, we you know a lot about football. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think about this all the time because what we do is we, we, we want to make it look easy so that anybody in the audience thinks they can just jump up on stage and be right next to us. That is the art of what we do. But it is so gruelingly, is that a word? Gruelingly yeah. difficult and athletic. And so... Um, uh, that's what I think most people don't know is how hard we work. And and so I guess you were you had some doubts yourself about whether or not you still were up for it. Well, yes. And also many of our houses on Broadway are were built as vaudeville houses and old houses. Um, they, they're not accessible. There's no elevators in our theater. We go up and down those stairs. I mean, we're all laughing because we know what that's like. Yeah. In order for me to go to the bathroom, which I have one opportunity to do the entire show, I mean, I'm jogging up two flights of stairs and racing back down. And it's just, it's, it's a joyful enterprise. But, you know, if I didn't have a team of people off stage pushing me on stage. <laughs> I don't know if I would actually make it out there. You all know the feeling of just like, and the supporting cast and all of our colleagues on stage, like we rely on each other because if we're having a down day, you know, we ha just have to look in the eyes of our scene partners and pray that they'll carry us through. So Ben in Dear Evan Hansen, you were playing a young man caught up in a web of his own lies. In this show parade, you are someone who's caught up in a web of lies told by basically everyone around him except his wife, played by Michaela Diamond, so great in this. Just tell us, I mean, your show here, Parade, first mounted in 1988, Alfred Urey, Jason Robert. 98, yeah, yeah. 90, excuse <laughs> me, uh, 98. But wasn't necessarily like a smash hit at that time. Mm -hmm. um, you, however, have, it's sort of been on the bucket list for a long time. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, you know, I'm in musical theater deep, deep nerd, as many people, many people at the table are too. And I think that Parade is a piece that's been like a hidden gem and like a beloved little um, piece of art that we all really cherish. You hear it all the time. There's been like productions now and then on sort of a lesser scale. Everyone sings it for auditions and showcases and pieces. And it's just a really beautiful piece of writing that, as you said, in 98, I think obviously there were people that recognized how special it was, but it didn't necessarily fall on ears that were completely ready to receive it and hear it. Um, and for me, I love Jason Robert Brown, the composer very much and always did growing up, listen to his music. And as a Jewish person, especially this story certainly was in the zeitgeist of my family. And, you know, for any that don't know, it's a true story about this man, Leo Frank, who was a Jew in 1913 from Brooklyn who moved to Georgia and was wrongfully accused of a murder. And thanks to a trial marred by a lot of anti-Semitism, was wrongfully convicted. And, um, during the two years that he spent in prison, there was a lot of resistance from the North and from other people to try to get him freed. Um, and there was a lot of great momentum, uh, also with the help of his wife, Lucille Frank. And um, just as his sentence was going to be commuted uh, and he was moved to like a lesser facility and things were really moving in the right direction, he was sprung from his 
cell by an anti-Semitic mob and was hung, was lynched. Um, and so it's, you know, you might hear that and think like, what a great musical. <laughs> but I think, you know, for me, that's my favorite pieces are things that try to take challenging material. And, and I feel like the magic of musical theater is that like you get to see the inside of people's souls and like hear levels and, and details in them that you can't in any other form. And Leo is exactly the kind of character that I want to hear from in that way. Yeah. Particularly because he's become this like symbol martyr, um, larger than life idea more so than a man. And so the way that Jason and the book writer Alfred made him into a person, uh, he was always on my list, as you said, of, of characters I'd love to play. And when Michael Arden pitched me the idea, he's such a brilliant director. I was like, this is the perfect place with the perfect person. And sadly, 25 years after the original um, production, it's actually feels to a lot of people sort of more relevant, even though we're further and further removed from the original, you know, the events that you're depicting. And just to that point, because I think it, you know, people may have a hard time wrapping their head around this, but uh, who was greeting you guys the first few weeks of performances? It was actually just one night. It was the first preview that we had. We had some neo-Nazi protesters outside telling our, our audience members and patrons who were on their way in that, you know, Leo Frank is a pedophile and you're glorifying a, you know, a murderer and, you know, a lot of tropes that you hear all the time from neo-Nazi groups in regards to anti-Semitism. And then we're also hearing for any kind of scapegoated group with the trans community. And it, it's happened to, to many different outliers, but I think uh, it was just a really um, urgent reminder of, uh, of why we're doing this right now. And there's been all kinds of universe reminders along the way that this is the moment for this particular piece. And I feel like anti-Semitism is always kind of an undercurrent that's always there and, and it happens to be coming into the light at this current moment, um, unfortunately, because it's on the uprise, but also because people aren't turning away from it, which is really um, hopeful, I think. And so uh, it's it's nice to be telling a story where there's such an urgent reason. Obviously, any any piece of art is worth telling whether or not there's this like great political tie. And so the embarrassment of riches is to have a piece like Parade where you really believe in it as a piece of art. And regardless of what it's about, it's so well-crafted and there's so much to mine as an actor. And then on top of that, as Victoria was saying, when there are day, down days where you just can't imagine getting out there, there's this amazing fire underneath of like, there's such a tangible, real, urgent reason to push yourself out onto the stage. Absolutely. Car, it's been a few years since Six Degrees of Separation and you chose to uh, come back to Broadway in this revival of Suzanne Laurie Park's 2001 Pulitzer winner, which has since been chosen as the best, the greatest play sent by the New York Times since Angels in America. So basically, I think they were looking at the last 25 years. Yeah. Um, was it material you were already familiar with? We should just say you're playing Link, as in Lincoln, one of these two brothers. His uh, brother is Booth, or as he wants to now be called, Three Card. And was there something about the, the story of these two guys that made you want to come back for this particularly? Well... The appeal here was definitely Susan Lloyd Parks. I mean, because the plays that they, you know, uh, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, as they say. Um, but also to be able to work with Kenny Leon, I had been bugging him, blowing his phone up. I'm like, bro, we have to work together. We have to work together. And we just never been able to to do it. Um, and then Yaya was on board already. And I thought Yaya was going to obviously be playing older brother and because because he's a couple years older than I was. And then he was like, no, nah, I'm playing Booth. And I was like, oh, OK, so I guess I'm playing. <laughs> and then um, uh, which was a challenge in and of itself. Um, but it was just a joy to be able to 
um, to bring this play back to Broadway. I knew of it, and and I, I remember uh, at Juilliard we saw they had done a production of it, and um, you know we were in theater blacks moving stuff around, you know, and and I just remember being uh, just enamored with this piece. Susan Lloyd Parks wrote an ode to black men, and allowed us to be our full beautifully complicated selves. It's, it's, it's a piece of poetry. Um, and it really does talk about three card money. It, it, it plays this like this trick with the audience and sort of lulls them into this false sense of security. And then it pulls the rug out from under them at the end. So that was the, I mean, the appeal was there. And do you think there's something that it says in 2023 that maybe um, wasn't even there in 2001? I think it's always there. Um, which <laughs> that, that, that idea of, of living in this skin and, and walking in this world, um, the world changes around you, but that, um, as a black man, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it doesn't change and it hasn't changed the challenges. Lincoln has to leave every day, go down to an arcade, sit there. He has to put on white face and he has to be shot, you know, in an, in an arcade. Um, by children, by adults, by school, like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of, uh, mental challenges he has to jump through to live his life outside, to make a living. Um, and then he comes home and he, it, it's sort of great to watch these brothers in this like castle that they create, you know, and watch them wrestle and play. And, and, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's, it's, Changed. I think those challenges are still there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sarah, you, of course, I think first crossed most of our radar with, you know, non-theatrical specific singing, songwriting. Um, but then your progression since then to where you are getting nominated for performance has been really interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically for Waitress, it's the music and lyrics. Then Jesse Mueller steps out. And all right, we'll give it a try. You step in. But even before that, and first we should say that was that's a baker. Now you're the baker's wife in Into the Woods. But you had actually been interested in Into the Woods before wait in performing in Into the Woods before waitress, right? Yes. So what's the root of your um particular draw to that production? Baking. <laughs> <laughs> It's really just about yes. the pie. Yes. Um, no, I, I think like many people, I got exposed to the PBS great performances into the woods very, very early on. Actually, back when I auditioned for the Mickey Mouse Club and didn't make it. But I was my vocal coach sat me down to prep me for my audition and she played into the woods just as a part of just getting into the psychology of performance and what is captivating on stage and trying to sort of make, you know, those connections for me. And I was, I think, 12 years old at that time. Um, but when I moved to New York 10 years ago, I, I was pursuing theater as I thought as a performer. And I got an audition for the production of Into the Woods that was in the park. And I auditioned to play Cinderella and can I say shit the bed on here? Please. Because when I I just the the audition was so deeply humbling and so pathetically terrible. I had no, I it gave me so much reverence and I was like, oh I I really I I'm not I'm not 
prepared to engage in this world in any way. You know, my music background had not prepared me for the rigor and the the necessary preparation. It just gave me a lot of of appreciation for that. But Jesse Mueller got that role. As she, deser- as she well yeah. deserved it and was wonderful in it. And then, yes, full circle moment, um, you know, I guess maybe four years later, after writing the music and lyrics for Waitress, Jesse was, yeah, our first choice to take over the lead for that. And um, it was a, it was really beautiful. It's a wild ride and how to get here. And uh, I, I'm very grateful for it. And then just, I mean, the fact that there even was this 2022 into the woods. I mean, it was never really planned, right? You guys heard oh, yeah. it was going to be two weeks. Two weeks for City Center Encore's um, series. I has I said yes many many months prior. Um, loved the idea of a short stint because after having been on Broadway and what Victoria was talking about, the incredible athleticism, and I was planning on writing a record last year, and I but you know my life was going to look very different. <laughs> <laughs> But as it does, you know, the art wants what it wants. And it is, oh my gosh, that sounds like the heart wants, wants what it, it wants. It does. I'm putting that on a t-shirt. Yeah, I do it. I want, I want half. Um, but it bloomed in this really beautiful and unexpected way. I can't tell you how shocking and, and delightful it is to be amongst all of you and to be a, a Tony nominee for performance means the world it's just beyond so yeah really really excited well we are gonna stay on the topic of sondheim uh, related stuff for a second because josh of course sweeney todd first performed in 1979 two years before the birth of josh groban um, <laughs> um you also like sarah first crossed our radar and i think it's correct to say non-theatrical singing or May have been theatrical, but not in the theater. Um, and I've always been hammy. <laughs> um, but then you came and started in what I really think might be my favorite theater-going experience ever, which was Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of eighteen twelve, and uh, that was your first time on Broadway. Yeah. Went very well. To come back now, though, in something that has such a, a history and legacy. Um, I guess just what was the, uh, well, I mean, this is, I think for you as well, this had been something that a part that was on your radar from when you were a kid, right? It was a part that I loved ever since I was a kid. I didn't necessarily always think that I would be right to do it. It was just something that I loved to listen to, loved to see other brilliant performances of it, loved the show. I mean, I think whenever you get to, um, you know, hold the torch for a moment for a show that we've loved for 40 years. Um, you have a responsibility to not mess it up and you have an equal responsibility to add what you add to it. And you got to honor it in both ways, bring a freshness and also a reverence for what's been there before you. And so um, there's a lot that I've been able to have as kind of a student of that score for many, many years. Um, we did a we did kind of a, a, a roundtable discussion with some some previous Sweeney's yeah. and Len Carey was there uh-huh. and we were all just kind of marveling at the idea that Len is the only Sweeney that never heard another Sweeney you know that never <laughs> that never got to, that got the music right. you know in real time right. you know and what that must have been like because it's a crazy thing but um, but I I've I've always been excited by the idea of stepping in something that's something of course like Great Comet there's a different challenge of something that's very new and yeah. so you want to try and figure out the puzzle of of presenting something that is a fresh listen for most audiences. And with something like Sweeney Todd, it's very easy 
to be a little bit cynical going into it that, oh, we're going to be doing it for people who've seen it 10 times and we hope that we're one of the versions that people really, really like. We've been pleasantly surprised that there have been a lot of people who've been like gasping and <laughs> crying at moments where you think like, oh, that's a, that's a first timer. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we all feel very privileged um, to be able to present present this this masterpiece every night. We've all loved it for a really long time. We're all terrified in all the best possible ways. After I did Great Comet, we talked about the athleticism. Like I was like, I'm going to do like, I want to do it just noises off next. I want to do something <laughs> comedy. I just, I was so, not that that's not athletic, but like the drama of, of Great Comet, I was thinking like, I just wanted slapstick, just something just, yeah. you know. And then Sweeney Todd opportunity came about, so I'm going, put on the helmet, going back in. <laughs> and just I, when I thought I was out. <laughs> and I think we, we should just note that you knew Sondheim before this project, yes. right? And then he was going to be, I think, giving you guys yeah. notes, right? We, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate that some of those concerts that you mentioned prior to my yeah. time in, in, in the, the theater landscape were concerts for things like his birthday and things like mm -hmm. that. I've always sung his songs, yeah. got to know him a little bit through that. I didn't really get to know him until Great Comet when I got a letter to Stage Door. He was obviously like an avid letter writer and I got one of his letters and um, and he'd, he'd, uh, he'd heard something and wanted to come to the show and we kind of became, you know, I guess pals since then. And, and we were all really excited by his excitement for our revival, we we knew that he had, uh, we had his enthusiastic support of all of us doing it. And he passed away two days before our first music rehearsal. And so we don't get to um, speed dial and ask him, but but he is now in that echelon of those great, you know, uh, those greats where you just, you just look at the work, you find it in the page, you yeah. find a new oboe part that you didn't consider. And you think, what did he mean by that? And you, you ask, through the through the work of it and we keep finding those answers every day that's the fun thing about the repetition of it is yeah. that by show 100 you know you you find a new thing and we we still are and i will just know in case there are listeners screaming uh that i should know this victoria clark's broadway debut in the same theater where she is now oh. doing her show was in Sunday in the Park with George, right? Oh, so. it was. And I never went on. So we can't really say it was my debut. I was um, understudying the two Celestes, the little girls who are fishing, and Frida, the German cook. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to learn, and each of those characters had a, a second act counterpart. So I think I had to learn seven roles in, oh in 36 gosh. hours. So the, the question at the audition was, do you read music? And how fast can you? Yeah, right. And I was a director. I was a baby then. I just moved to New York as a director. Yeah. And I was um, at the NYU Musical Theater Program as a director. There was only one year the Cycle One had added directors for their, their second year. So, um, yeah, so the casting people saw me and gave me this audition saying, you're not really a director, you're an actor. You need to come audition for this. And mm -hmm. they gave it to me and, and they had seen me learn material really quickly. So they knew I could. And was he, this is 1985, was he a Correct. presence there? Um, James Lapine was. Okay. Yeah. So, and there was another understudy who pushed me on stage early during a rehearsal that James attended. And nice. Yeah. And it was a comic moment. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I know this isn't right. And then I turned around and like screamed at the other understudy. <laughs> she just wanted to like kind of undermine the whole thing. But, you know, fun understudy stories. All right. Well, at long last, we come to Jessica Chastain. Um, I think that it's pretty noteworthy that at maybe the hottest moment of a career that somebody could have coming off of a Best Actress Oscar for the eyes of Tammy Faye, as well as 
George and Tammy for TV, which is still cycling through its own award season now, you chose to come back to the theater. And it's not the first time because the last time, which was your first time on Broadway, was right after the most insane year that anyone ever had in 2011, which was the help and tree of life. And we can go on and like, I think there were seven or something. So what is it that when, you know, some people's inclination might be, all right, I better keep my foot on the gas of screen acting because it's going where I want it to go or whatever. You sort of have a um, inkling to come back to New York. Well, I'm a New Yorker. I live in New York. Mm -hmm. Theater's my first love. It was something, um, it's, 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 it's a bit cliche, but it's the absolute truth. You know, as a child, it was the first time that I really felt part of something bigger than myself. It was the first time that I felt seen by a community of people and accepted. And I felt like I belonged somewhere. So for me, it's, it's, it's hugely important to my upbringing into the person I am. Uh, and so, you know, it, being in that moment of, in, in my career where it's like you could choose to do a lot of things, there's nothing else I really wanted to do but to come back and, and to get to do a doll's house, you know, with Jamie Lloyd and Amy Herzog. It's pretty, which is also, it's, you know, I have, I've, it's so important to me, the idea of women in our society, you know, and how we're valued. And so it just, every dot lined up um, in, in the way that I really wanted it to. And even more than that, I think the, this was in the works for a few years, right? But when the pandemic hit, the, the plan had been to do it in London, right? Yeah. But Broadway was in trouble. Yeah. So um, when I first signed on to do it, I was going to do it at the Playhouse Theater, um, Jamie Lloyd's company. Uh, and we were supposed to start rehearsals April of 2020. And I was very excited to to start. And then the pandemic hit and I spent a lot of time in New York, just really devastated and walking around Times Square and, then, and, and talking to the people in our community. And, you know, in, in live theater, really suffered uh, for quite a long time during the pandemic. And so I called Jamie up and I said, I just don't want to leave my home. So is there any way you would consider doing it in New York? And he said, yes. And then when he agreed to do it uh, in New York, he said, actually, you know what? We were going to use a different adaptation. He said, I've really been thinking I would like a woman to really look at this play. And that's how Amy Herzog came on board. And she's the first woman to adapt A Doll's House for Broadway. And I find it so exciting because Nora, in, in our version, in Amy's version that she adapted, she's complicit in holding up this society that oppresses her until she's not. And that is really interesting to me. She's not just this beautiful victim. She's participating in the beginning. And we, I mean, I guess just a quick follow-up, like, you know, obviously five of the six of you guys are in Revival. So, the, but, but in the case of A Doll's House, we're talking about 13 Broadway productions going back to 1889, <laughs> literally on Broadway, including people, I think, that uh, or even, you know, in one version or another, forget about just the Broadway versions like yeah. Leah Volman, who I know you yes. love and all kinds. And who came to our show recently. Oh, really? Amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So just like, does that, when you have, again, such a, a long history of, of people tackling a part is that daunting, extra daunting, extra exciting? What is that? 
well, there's a great sisterhood. And when I, you know, the first time I was on Broadway, I had the opportunity to do The Heiress. And I found out Cherry Jones was in the audience. And of course, her performance of The Heiress is monumental, right? Mm. And uh, I found out, I was like, oh gosh, Cherry Jones is here. And I felt like this, oh no, like I was so embarrassed to do it in front of her. (laughs) And she came backstage and she had a gift for me. She goes, I have these books that I want to give you that I used when I was preparing to play Catherine's number. And also another actress gave them to me. Who And, she's, and she talked to me about the sisterhood and that we're all connected and we're all walking, you know, on these paths that others has forged. I mean, from the, I was just like in love with Jerry Jones, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we've worked together since then and I'm, I'm obsessed with her. But it, it was such a lesson in really honoring the people who have come before you and not, I don't see it as, um, as something that's, overly intimidating. I see it as that we're, we're helping each other along the, the path and maybe discovering new things as we go. Yeah, none of them have been done exactly the, in any of these revivals, but certainly I don't think there's ever been a Dolls House that had, you know, a lazy Susan going around oh at the beginning gosh. of the and He's making eye contact things. with yeah. all the audience members. <laughs> Which we are going to come back. I want to talk to you and Ben about <laughs> a variation of that in a moment. But um, I think we should know, because this is pretty, I, I was you know, struck to realize this prepping, every one of you, all six of you, your principal co-star in the show that you're representing here today is also Tony Nominatus. And so for Sarah, that's Brian Darcy James as the baker. For Corey, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, we mentioned as Booth. Jessica Ariane Moayed as Torvald. Uh, Josh Annalie Ashford as Mrs. Lovett, who just won the Drama League Award, which is an amazing, big honor. Ben, we talked about Michaela Diamond as Lucille Frank, Leo's wife, and Victoria Justin Cooley, who's Kim's friend, crush, whatever. We won't put labels on this. (laughs) Yes. But I guess I just want to, you know, we don't have to go in any particular order, whoever wants to jump first. But, um, you know, when you have a, obviously, these are all uh, almost all, you know, sizable ensemble, you know, shows, but for these particular co-stars and the closeness with which you each work with them, can we talk about things that maybe you, you will remember most or take away most from that relationship? And I guess, Jessica, let's start this time with you and Ariane. Yeah. Well, I, I love working with Ariane. Uh, he has a wonderful way of being in the industry and being in the world where he he looks at an artist as a, as a citizen, you know, and what are you contributing to society and how are you using your art to become a good citizen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it's a, it's a beautiful thing um, to have someone dedicating their life to that. It's also so wonderful to get to act in a play like A Doll's House with him because, you know, he's Iranian and we talked a lot about what was happening over there, what is happening currently over there. He has so many people that come to see it and they say, you know, it's, there's so many women who's like, this is, this is what, you know, this is Iran right now. I mean, it's all over the world yeah, right sure. now. Um, this, this idea of um, women fighting for their place um, uh, in society. So it's, it's wonderful to have him as someone to talk to about what's going on in the world, as someone to act opposite of. I mean, in our version, Nora helps create Torvald. He's not just this person who is emotionally abusing her and like death by a thousand paper cuts as, as lovely as, as he seems, she has also created, um, she's participated in creating the person he has, he yeah. is. 
and just quick follow, uh, are you able to extract any succession spoilers from our internet? Well, I'm also really good friends with Jeremy Strong. <laughs> oh, Jeremy Strong, right, yes. So I'm yes. like surrounded, and Brian Cox came to our show. Right. I mean, I'm surrounded by the, the succession folks, right. but I don't want to know ahead of time. I, I right. hate getting spoilers. No, I, I agree. And yeah. <laughs> uh, Sarah, I want to ask you, Brian Darcy James is one of the greats. I just saw him in uh, the new musical version of Days of Wine and Roses with Kelly O'Hara, which is very exciting. Um, but just working with Brian, I think you previously had a different baker at City Center. I did. Neil Patrick Harris was my baker at City Center. And... Um, and to be honest, the the transfer to Broadway, I was very nervous about because it really felt that the alchemy of our company at City Center, it just felt like we happened upon lightning in a bottle. And I, I took a minute to say yes, because I, I was asking myself, is this greedy? Are we being greedy just because it was popular? Are we trying to like extract more or did, can we just let something be beautiful and ephemeral, which is what I love about theater anyway. But then ultimately I really came to just the profundity of, of this piece and how healing it seemed to be to the audience. I know it was for us inside of it, but so I, it felt like an exciting new chapter to get to tell the story again. Um, Brian is the most generous, grounded, loving, hilarious man. He is, you know, iconic for a reason in this industry. He's the easiest person to work with. He's so fucking funny. Um, and we, it was really easy to find, you know, new colors to the relationship of the baker and his wife, who I named Rebecca because I'm like, she's not going to just be the baker's <laughs> wife. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. My baker's <laughs> wife is Rebecca. Um, nice. And yeah, he just was, um, he was so generous and malleable and, you know, it's, it's the challenge of, of, of discovering the same relationship on a new person um, and just wanting to be really present, but he was really, I, it was so much fun to work with him. I would do it forever. He's the best. Then Michaela Diamond, again, Lucille Frank was 20, I think when you guys first started developing this together, she's now 23. She's 23. And I think her only other Broadway credit is playing Cher. Cher. She was one of the shares so, in the yeah, Cher show. Cher and Lucille, Lucille Frank, no Frank. range at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, she she's extraordinary. I mean, I she well, Leo and Lucille were twenty three and twenty nine when Leo was arrested, and that's our ages. And I think that we, you know, didn't necessarily expect. I knew she was going to be extraordinary. Like I've seen her, I, I had seen her in Cher, and I'd heard a lot of tell about her, and you know, I've watched YouTube videos of her singing. And we also went to the same youth theater program here in the city at a different time called Kids Theater with a Z. Um, and I saw her play um, uh, Victoria's World in Light in the Piazza when she was 15 years old. Oh my gosh, and I want to see that. It, uh, let me tell you, it was really, really, I mean, I bet. you're an icon. It was, <laughs> it was pretty great. Um, and so I, I knew that I, artistically I would feel very sort of equaled and challenged. But I think as a person, we just have really connected in a really profound way. We're both cut very much from the same 
cloth in terms of being musical theater babies and also Jewish kids who had similar upbringings. And we have a similar love and reverence for this particular show and for Jason. And I think that the marriage within the within Parade is where all, a lot of the joy and compassion and love comes from. And for us, you know, as as wonderful as our company is, you know, obviously everyone is a, is a beautiful person off stage. The experience of the show is very much everybody against the two of us. And so we are kind of on an island receiving a lot from from everybody and a lot of oppression and isolation. And so uh, it's got to be someone that you trust so deeply and who you can find joy with in the little cracks where it's afforded. And it couldn't be easier to find those things with Michaela and falling in love with her every night and having the journey of sort of these two people seeing each other for the first time um, is what makes it so bearable and, and, and makes me excited to do it. Not that I'm not excited conceptually by the importance of it and the difficulty of it, but as a human being going and doing it eight times a week, the thing I really look forward to is the joy in, in Michaela and I finding each other. And I really have just never felt so completely held, which is why I think we're both able to do the work that we're doing is that we feel like we can fall yeah. fall flat and, and be okay because we're with each other. And you, I mean, all of these are, you know, in different ways, such emotionally um, demanding shows that you're in. Jessica, at the end of your show, um, when you come out, even for the bows, you're 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 going to give away the very no 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 no, no I don't worry don't worry <laughs> there is a cool thing we will not say but uh, I mean just you're you can you can't just turn it totally you know I, I don't know how anyone could just turn it totally on I or off begged to not do the curtain call you begged to not I begged I said to Jamie she. I don't want to give away the, yeah. I mean, everyone, if you haven't read The Doll's House, you should read it. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think that I should come back for a curtain call. And I was, it's also so quick right after this yeah. monumental thing. So I begged and begged. I said, I wouldn't it be rock and roll to not do a curtain call or just me not show up? And then he said, he goes, it's not for you. It's for the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. So I literally. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I bring it up just because. So that's that's you. That tells you where, tells the listeners where you are at the end of your show. Um, ben, you and Michaela are clearly, you know, it's it's a grueling show to do. Uh, I want to go to Corey and ask about what you and Yaya did when, when this was running in the fall, which was that, you know, obviously – it builds and builds to an uh, explosive situation with the two characters. But then you and Yaya would shake hands at the end of each performance, right? In front of the, you t basically at the bows? Well, yeah, I don't know if we plan. I, I think, um, first of all, I'm, I'm just, thank you for asking about our co-stars. Sure. Because mm. none of us would be able to do, I think, yeah. what we're doing without them or, or be here. And, and, and just really happy to see that that's all being recognized um uh towards the yes at the end at, the, at our bows we just needed to make sure that we touched each other and um whether it was a hug or just a hand on the shoulder or whatever it was at the end um because we were in such emotional fragile places um that i've never in my career had the opportunity to or maybe had the 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 guts to go there um and i thank him for allowing me that because we, when we talk about this play, Yaya and I, that trust, everyone's like, well, how did you guys, you know, bond? How did you become brothers? And we were like, we're both artists. And we know, you know, from the jump, we knew the responsibility we had to come in and tell and speak these words every single night. 
And we also knew what the journey was, but getting there was a surprise every single night. And so people would come back three times and stand at the stage door and just ask us questions. And we'd be like, that's interesting. Let's, we're going to play with that next. You know what I mean? And we'll see what we can find. Um, but, it, but I equate it to running with stallions uh, or like just, you know, I, I think there's this thing where horses, when they're running and they see that other horse, you know, sort of right beside them, they push a little bit further. Mm, and there's yeah. something about that. It's the play is called Top Dog Underdog for a reason. And so there was a healthy, very healthy competitiveness with me and Yaya because it was throughout the play, you're constantly shifting, shifting, shifting. And so um, it was just great to be able to trust him. We spoke the same language, both trained actors. And to your point about making it look easy, um, especially that thing, especially like we're playing black men in a particular station, you know, in their lives. And for a lot of people, they see us up there and they think, well, that's that's what they do. You know, that that's that's easy. That comes easily or naturally. Um, but to get up and do what everybody is doing, sometimes twice a day, you know, three hour shows, yeah. it's it takes a lot. And so you depend heavily on your partner and your your co-star. And and uh I'm I was just really fortunate to have him as a brother to lift each other up because uh yeah, it's it it took a it top dog took a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't like, can, mm. can only imagine. Um Victoria, you the the dynamic with you and Justin Cooley is pretty interesting. First of all, how old is he? Justin is 19. Uh, 19, and he has not been on Broadway this before? This is his uh, professional debut. Um, his Actually, his professional debut is at The Atlantic doing this role. Christ. And he came to the casting director's attention through the Jimmy Awards, which were, you know, on... What you call it? Like Zoom. Theater, yeah. Zoom because of the oh, pandemic. Oh, so no one had ever seen him in person. What? Um, right. And so the Jimmy Awards have become this great sort of um, fertile ground for finding young actors. And um, yes, and there's so many shows now that require, you know, really great um, kids who are, you know, on the verge, on the cusp of adulthood. And so the thing with Justin is that... It, we met, you know, on the first day of rehearsal for The Atlantic, and we had an instant bond. It was one of those things where it was just an instant connection. Of course, I felt very maternal towards him. I'm 44 years older than he is. And yet we have to meet eye to eye as colleagues. So for me, that was such and is such a beautiful experience to learn from him every night because he 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 doesn't have any hang-ups, right? Mm. He has no formal training. Fresh eyes. He has fresh eyes. He's very alert and responsive and, and grounded and beautiful. And, and it's so moving to do this piece with him, which is essentially this young girl facing the end of her life. And for Vicky, for me to look at his face and not see too much life on his face yet, right? It's this beautiful. And even in the past year and a half that I've known him, you know, the mom in me can't help but notice, and my son's 20, almost 29 now, I can't help but notice how these features are maturing into, you know, a young man. When I met him, I felt like a baby, right? But he um, he had like 20 minutes of insecurity on the first day because I'm, I'm quite silly in rehearsal and this show really brings it out of me. And <laughs> we were improving something that he, he wasn't really sure what I was doing. And I was like over in his like area, like at the can, we have a candy stand at the skating rink. And I was like handing him 
tortilla chips for my bag, or I was just making up all this stuff, right? And he was just frozen because <laughs> we were like in front of the director. It was our first day on our feet. We'd done not that much book work. And he was just like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> and he's kind of me. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was just like farting around with him. And, <laughs> and then we talked during the next break and he kind of had a moment. And then that was it. Like Jessica Stone has guided us all. We're all equals over there, you know, in the show. I can't, I can't be anything other than where I am at that age. I've only been on the planet 15 years. So there's a lot of my own life experience that I have to discard mm -hmm. and just be, just be, be in my body and be in this moment and learn from all of these incredible young people. I mean, it's been, it's been, I mean, I was so emotional listening to everyone talk about your, your co-stars because we really can't do it. What, like Corey said, we can't do it without having, and then too, we trust each other so much. And in order for us to raw, to be raw and honest, we, we have to know that we can fall into the arms of the people around us. It's really sometimes actually physically, yeah. Yeah, right? We, right? We really lean on each other. Well, and speaking of physical, there's so much physical comedy and stuff going on with yeah. Annalie Ashford and Josh and Sweeney Todd. She's, I think, m more appreciated in New York than she she should be more appreciate, equally appreciated elsewhere. But I think theater people know how good she is. And also just to have another Sondheim connection, she was Sunday in the Park with George. Josh and Sunday in the Park. Yeah. And I, I guess I just wonder um, if you can talk about what you know, how you guys developed so much of this is yeah. uh, physical stuff, just how you guys worked it out. I, I, I was first able to bear witness to just her incredible physical comedy and, and how she's able to just turn a phrase and communicate in um, Midsummer Night's Dream at Shakespeare in the Park. And I watched her uh, just completely transcend up there and just thought to myself, I would love, gosh, I would love to do anything to bounce off that one day to be able to just be and play in that, in that space with her one day. And so we were part of that original music kind of workshop um, you know, a couple of years ago. And, you know, we both felt the weight of responsibility. You know, we both had very big shoes to fill and wanted to make it our own and have fun with that. And, um, and, and she brought so much of her own instincts to this role in a way that has been so incredible to, to just watch and be a part of in rehearsal. Um, it's hilarious. And Sondheim, we knew, wanted Love It to be a, a very much a hilarious take the wind out, you know, uh, mo moment, moments in the show. And she makes Sweeney funnier, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, but the other thing that we really wanted to lean on each other for, and we do check in like offstage every scene break that we have because we know where we have to go. And we're always just, it's like a squeeze of a hand. It's just, are we okay? Like, and we do that just in general. I give Jamie Jackson who plays Judge Turpin a huge hug before and after each show because <laughs> I have to be seething with with hatred for right. the whole the whole show. Um, but the other thing that, that Annalie really wanted to do that she brought so wonderfully was just to develop more of a a kind of sexual chemistry and a romantic chemistry between Lovett and Sweeney that sometimes hasn't always been there, you know, that, that it's always been very, um, very much about their goals in life. And they're just kind of on two different boats that are that are next to each other, and and she uh, really wanted to, you know, wanted to make sure that there was that connection, that there was actually like a reason to believe that beyond their own goals, 
that there was behind the scenes there was there was more going on there, which would which would make the the breaking of trust even more heartbreaking. Well, um, and there's a courage scene where she's basically seducing you while you're uh, there's twerking twerking. In, I mean, it's like hilarious. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> she's got the hots for Sweeney for sure, right. and 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 their their definition their definition of love and want and is very different. They do have very different goals, but because there is such a give and take that she's brought to that role, um, it there's so much more to to play off of and um, and bouncing off of the stuff that she brings and, and keeping it fresh like that every night is just has been such an, a joy for me. It's, it's amazing to have a partner that you can trust like that. With our next uh, round, what I want to do is talk about some of the oddities and eccentricities of these productions that you guys are in. And this is where I'm going to come back to. We sort of referenced it earlier, but Jessica and Ben, you guys are on stage for extended periods of time when actors usually are not. Jessica, while the audience is entering the theater, I think it's like 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then Ben, during the entire intermission, I guess, how did those decisions come about and basically in your mind what does it add to your performance and whoever wants to jump first well from what i gather they're quite different but i haven't been able to see jessica because they started when we were already started right <laughs> but um you know michael arden our director came to me with this concept way at the beginning when he pitched me the whole production back in 2018 really i mean i got a little bit more detail when it came back together after the pandemic but I'm pretty sure I already knew about it for our initial reading. But um, so it's definitely his his idea, not mine. Mm -hmm. um, but I um, I guess in terms of the, like what it means for the production, you know, Leo is convicted at the very end of the first act. It ends with his guilty verdict. There's no spoilers. This is a true story. Right. Um, and he's uh, immediately in this kind of cacophony of celebration, a very ugly celebration. He's put up in his cell and changed into his prison clothing and then sat in his cell and remains there for the intermission. Um, and I think there's something very confronting and kind of uncomfortable about it in the sense that this story isn't something that particularly Jewish people or really anyone has the luxury of disengaging from entirely. And I think intermission is such a comfort when you get to completely disengage and go have a drink and go to the bathroom and kind of forget for a moment and catch your breath. And not that there are plenty of people that don't do that, which is a super valid reaction to the lights coming up and it being intermission. But I think Michael really wanted to um, challenge that impulse a little bit and really sort of confront the audience with the fact that he there was no escaping for him and that he spent these two years in isolation. And for me, it's very much about honoring that fact. You know, the show the, the show is super propulsive, and we're trying to cover a lot of ground and 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 express a lot of ideas and big thoughts. And there isn't necessarily a ton of time to just dwell with the fact that this three dimensional man spent the last two years of his life sitting alone in a room for something he didn't do. And so it it allows me to kind of have this ritual of like, no matter what other noise is happening, you know, in this award season or on any given day, or I'm hungry or I'm sad or whatever it might be, there's a point in, in every day to just sit with that fact and honor that fact and sort of pay homage to that fact. Um, and I'm curious about Jessica's experience, because for me, it's, it's, it's so entirely different every time, both in terms of where I'm at and where I was gonna say, reactions like, of others What if you are. need a bathroom break? What if you need a glass of water? What if people are being assholes in the audience? You know, hey, Ben, like, you know, like we, we certainly get that. I mean, yeah. I, I think I, the whole point is to see the, 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 
the variety of reaction. There are people that sit and just take it in entirely and don't move. There are people that completely disengage and go pee and have snacks, which is also totally valid. There's reactions I don't love, which is people taking videos and photos and saying, turn around, Ben, I love you. I'll take a picture of you, blah, blah, blah. So it's, you know, it, it's, but that's all it comes with the territory. That's the point. I think if it was like a perfect sea of people sitting and, and paying, paying respect, there would be no reason for the, right. for the conceit. Right. Um, and Jessica, I know you get a little bit of the weird, uh, behavior as well. This is as they're showing up, you, you know. And ours is welcomed though in a weird way. Tell me, tell me what. Well, I think, you know, in the beginning, I didn't understand how Jamie w wanted to direct this. And he just kept saying he wanted it to be relentless on me. <laughs> and he didn't really want me to, ha he wanted me to be trapped most of the time. And he, a, the a lot of the show, the majority of the show, I can't turn away from the audience. So the audience has full access to me. And then the pre-show is when people are coming in with their drinks or whatever. They see me, I'm sitting in a chair kind of just going into a, in a circle. And in some sense, it's like treating me as an object to be observed. And we said in the beginning, well, you know, there's going to be people filming, there's going to be people taking pictures of me, like the whole idea of someone coming into the, the play because they saw Zero Dark Thirty or they saw the help and, you know, the, bringing the, the history of that baggage with them of the other performances and celebrity culture. But what the pre-show does, it allows that to happen and then get dissipated. So they come, you know, they Let's come in. That. Exactly. They take their pictures. There's so many times I see people taking selfies with me. They make eye contact. They say, Jessica, I love you. There's like very sweet things that begin to send me hearts and all this. And I stay in character and I make eye contact. That's the I make eye contact with every single person in the audience. You recognize people? Oh, my God. Yeah. Bono came? I thought I was going to die. <laughs> that was so stressful. Nora and Bono. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm making eye contact. Al Pacino. Like, really? I'm literally ma making eye contact with people. I'm glancing over. Sometimes I'll hold it longer if I feel like I'm being challenged in some way. But it's a way of also it creates this sacred space in the theater. So then... I think we, people are used to going to the theater and be like, okay, I can see the actors, but they can't see. And it's like, no, 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 I see each and every one of you. We're doing this together. Yep. And there's a couple times in our show where my character, Nora, is confronting the outside world in some sense. So it's the beginning of the show and the end of the show. And it's the audience is supposed to go on that journey with me. And so I feel very closely connected to them uh, in every performance because of it. And then I guess also, because I know this has come up each year, we've done a roundtable like this. Um, I guess it gets rid of something that a lot of people don't like, a lot of actors don't like, which is entrance applause, right? Yeah. Yeah, it actually, I mean, sometimes uh, <laughs> there'll be like a couple people that will applause. <laughs> like, you know, it's like when I'm rotating before the show starts, you're thinking like, that's a bit awkward. But, you know, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. By the time the show starts, because slowly each of the actors, everyone in the ensemble starts to come in with their backs towards me, you know, and it's slowly as it builds. And so it gets every, the audience ready of like when the show starts, there's no applause. We never have anyone filming. No one's taking pictures. It's like all of a sudden, every, like the tone has been set. And I think it was really wonderful what yeah. Jamie did. Interesting. Well, Dude, I just, love the applause. So I, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the thing. Okay. I feel like a part of you guys has to, but you don't have to. <laughs> no, 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 no. But um, my first line, you can't hear it. That's, so that's annoying. true. I can't. It's true. It was amazing. It was yeah, shriek. Character it does. does. It. You work so hard to be in character. Then you come on stage, you're like, 
Oh, yeah. I'm also <laughs> someone else. <laughs> pulled out of the pits of hell to, to yeah. attend the tale. Right. And I'm seeing a lady with my Christmas album t-shirt. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. It's damn it. Just wait. Just you wait. <laughs> You're in for a treat. Well, You're in the splash zone. <laughs> let's stick with Josh for a second here, though, because another thing that jars the audience at, at your show, not that it's unexpected for anyone who knows what Sweeney Todd's about, but just the way that you guys depict the, um, not stabbing, what would be the word? Just slicings? Yeah, slicings. Slicings. Throat cutting, uh, throat cutting sure. Yes. Very um, impressive effects. Mm. And then also dispatching your victims yes. down some sort of a slide blank contraption, I yes. would imagine. Can you break it down? Just Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when I was talking with Tommy Kale and, and, and Mimi Len, our, our extraordinary uh, set designer, we really didn't, we didn't want to be conceptual with the violence of the show. We wanted it to be really there and in people's face. And we wanted it to be bloody. We wanted to, to you know, that uh, there's a, a great kind of dark, twisted humor when the, the body just kind of drops while singing goodbye, you know, <laughs> goodbye, Joanna, you know, you're gone and the body's going right. and people laugh. And that's what Sondheim wanted. That's right. that dark, twisted kind of thing. And so the, the magic trick of that was always really important that we had that stuff working. And so we're constantly fine tuning, you know, that chair is like an old antique Chevy. Like it's like, it's really heavy, <laughs> and right. clanky and you know, there's a clutch and, you know, so it was really fun to, to figure out how to use all that stuff and, um, and fun to do, to, to, to do all the, all the special effects. It's, it's, uh, it's not great for the costume department, but, <laughs> but, but it's ironically, the only yeah. way to get the fake blood out of our skin is with shaving cream. So really? yeah, it's, it's, oh my soap God. doesn't <laughs> do it. So, so we're, that's another hilarious. Sick joke that they and then did I hear they had to like kind of fine tune the, the slide device or something where people originally getting well, stuck on there or something? Well, we, you know, during previews, we, we had a couple of nights <laughs> where the chair just decided to, you know, malfunction. And right. so, you know, there's, there's, and I'm just up there by myself, like, and with that device, like their safety is my responsibility. Right. Like I, when I turn the chair and the trap door opens, like I have to see that it's open all the way. I have to see that the padding's in place. And there's a lot of things I have to see before I, I send them down. And so when things aren't exactly right, if the slope doesn't open all the way, if something's not exactly right, I have to jump into plan or B or C mode, right. which is complicated when you're already doing a lot. Yeah, you got a lot going on. So, um, you know, there were times where uh, there was one night when the chair decided to not come back up from the flat position. <laughs> and so Judge Turpin, Jamie Jackson is supposed to walk in. And of course, nothing is supposed to seem out of line. Just know he's going to die. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, and uh, and he goes up and he looks at it and he looks at me and we're just going, we're just going to do this. All right. <laughs> and he kind of sits on it, like half leaning back, like, this is fine. You know, yeah. there's nothing to see here. Um, there have been some, there's been some unintentional comedy. We've had dead bodies have to just walk off the stage at oh, times, yeah. you know, in a very like play that goes wrong kind of right, way. Right. Um, and, you know, that's what previews are for. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, but. But it's 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 a lot of moving parts and a lot of springs that need to be replaced and a lot of other things that need to happen and tech tech things happen yep. and the audience knows and um, it's it's already so you know there's already so much melodrama and comedy and stuff that yeah. sometimes but but yeah that was frustrating when it happens of course. Victoria and Sarah, I want to ask you about: Do you tailor your own? I guess the voice that you would, if you were just like you're playing a 15, 16 year old, right? She's not going to sing like. Victoria Clark, with your years of skill and uh, experience, do you curb something to be sing like? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is I could talk a long time about this film. Sitting here with 
three really brilliant singers, and you guys probably sing too. I haven't heard it, but um, Corey and Jess probably also sing. But um, yes, like ah, that was a big, a big part of the development of this character is how does she sing, and how can I craft this so that the speaking voice matches up with the singing? So it's um, so technically, I would say that when I'm singing full into my legit soprano voice, it kind of feels like I'm um, on like a four lane highway in LA, let's say. Yeah. Um, and so to kind of get mentally and technically where I need to be, I have to like bring it down to one lane, like a twisty country road, let's say, so that I'm still on my breath and the chords are phonating healthily, but it's not as with as much muscle. And that ironically is very tiring because it's not what I would call um, the easiest sound for me to make with all of my legit and classical training, um, but it is the most honest sound for Kim. And so that's been part of the challenge is, um, and sometimes when I'm tired, I have to sing with more weight in the instrument just because it's, <laughs> I just have to. What yeah. your muscle memory knows what to do, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and you all know, you brilliant folks know, um, you know, just from years and years of singing, like you'll start a phrase and just from fatigue or allergy season or sinus infection or whatever, it's like you start the phrase and it's like, okay, it's like parallel parking a car, uh, a stick shift car on, in San Francisco, right? <laughs> like immediately you go into tech, technique brain and you go, okay, I'm going to have to move the sound a little bit more into my sinuses or like a little bit, oh no, I'm going to add a little more chest here. And it's, I'm... I'm a big voice nerd. I love talking about this. Well, you this. teach it, right? Also, I do teach, yeah. and um, I am a devotee of honest singing, so that the singing has to match the moment. And I think if my whole life's work could be summed up really in making sure that whether I'm speaking or singing, um, the thought of the sound contains the life experience and the emotion and the honesty of the moment so that it's almost pre-programmed in a way so that like for many of us who are, are kind of kinetic actors, the body, we don't tell the body how it's going to move. We just allow it to. So the dream, the goal is to have the voice do exactly what's required, nothing more, nothing less in that moment. And that's a beautiful challenge, wow. but you know, oh, really for this particular role, uh, yeah. Thank you. No, that's tall good. order. Very, very. You do impeccably. Yeah. I can't wait off mic to just pick your brain and just <laughs> talk about voice because it's so true. Yeah. Well, and allergies. Yeah. Allergies. Yes. <laughs> All my remedies. Yes. All right. Well, Sarah, uh, I want to ask you and then Josh, if you want to jump in afterwards. Uh, you've th said, though, Sarah, that there's something about Sondheim uh, music. I don't know if it's, I, I guess it's the lyrics or the, the pacing of it or something that is particularly challenging, even for somebody who's sung as much as, as you have. And, and you know, it, it's not, a, it's not a, I guess, can you break down why you find uh, his music different than others? It's very dense. It's very dense and um, intellectual and melodically it, it's really rangy. There's big intervals. You know, pitch is really I'm pitch is really important to me. Like it drives me crazy when I can't, you know, land the note. Um, 
And yeah, it was a, I, I worked with Rob Berman, our music director, and we sat singing through these songs that I was, to be honest, like a little surprised. I thought I would, it would be an easier sing because it's not, it, it felt like I, I spoke to my old music director, Nadia DiGiallonaro, who did Waitress with me. And she's like, this should be no problem. It's like right in your range. I was like, it doesn't though. sound like it's rangy. in my range. <laughs> it's a big range. It is. The, yeah, definitely the um, the finale and the opening number. I'm singing much more legit sort of stylistically you than I normally. You up there. I got to say, I love that part of your voice. Say it again closer to the mic. <laughs> Love it so much. <laughs> and Josh, I mean, have you found that it is its own kind of unique beast as well? Yes, there's. Uh, it's um, it's 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 a puzzle to, to to you know to to keep at the standard with this music that we all want to have with it. It's of course it's something that we all knew how complicated the score was when we, we went into it. Um, the music rehearsals were long and there are, you think, you know, it. you hear, uh, you know, uh, other versions of it. And then there are notes in there that, you know, as you study it more and more, you think, Oh, that's supposed to, that's that. Okay. And that's that. And the pitch thing is exactly right. There are things that, you know, you have to really focus. It takes just an enormous amount of focus out there. And, um, and I think the other thing that, you know, is such a great combination of the head and the heart that he wrote for this stuff. So it is really brainy, but, even though the stories are so weird, you know, I mean, the, I always joke that like the elevator pitches for like what he might have said he was writing about <laughs> next are so outrageous. Like, oh, good luck with that, Steve. Um, but he finds these common human threads through these weird stories that we all connect to. And um, it's the most incredible, you know, what great theater is like edutainment. You know, I wanted to learn more about pointless painting. I'm I was curious about London. I wanted to know, go and learn about that in Victorian London, you know. There's things that I, even as a young theater student and as a kid, yeah. found myself in these characters, even though I had nothing in common with them outside of his music and lyrics. And um, and so, you know, leaning into the juxtaposition of, of what he's done there um, is really, really fun. He also writes a lot about, like, the action is doing something very different than what the singing is doing. And he loves that that play and that balance, which is, again, takes a lot of focus, but makes it a lot of fun to do. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, like, some of the real world like things you can maybe do. Maybe it's not obviously going to make a difference to go read about London at a certain time or whatever, but Ben, like you, I read, went and tracked down the Leo Frank house in yeah. Brooklyn or whatever. Like, uh, I think there's other variations of this. Is I, I wondered, Corey, you know, is there anything you can do aside from really just study the material to prep for what you were signing up for for, for yours? Yes, there's a lot. There. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's a... Yeah. I remember uh, we had the 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 guys who were teaching me how to actually play the card. Yes, and I, 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 people know I'm I'm clumsy as hell. So like when <laughs> when I'm playing, it was unbelievable. I have to say it was crazy. Yeah. It's like really a virtuosic. Yeah. I mean, you're doing an, an incredible amount of things. But sorry, yes. no, thank you, man. I, but I remember them saying because uh, like when I play spades with like my friends, I, I I always give the cards to someone else to shuffle because. I know I don't know how to do it. They always like fall flat on my hands. So like, um, and we take space very seriously. Um, but I remember them telling me, and Yaya also was never taught the the hype or the trick of it. I think he may have figured it out, but he never knew how I did it each night. So he knew what it was, but he was never able to recreate it or like oh, do it, which was, I was like, yes. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and I remember them telling me also just, 
if I ever, you know, outside of rehearsal, when you don't have those cards on you, it should feel strange because it feels strange to those guys. Like this is their livelihood. And and you have to be so good because some of those guys are going to be coming to see this show. And they did. They're going to know. And they know. And they know. And, and you also can't, sh- the audience can't get the trick because that's a big faux pas. Like you're not supposed to actually give up the three card Monty. And, and so they were very secretive about that with me. And I wasn't allowed to tell anybody in the production and like, you know, but also people still make their hustle doing that. And so you have to be respectful of that. And also had to learn how to play the guitar and like yeah. sing in it and, and all of that. And um, it was just a lot of juggling and uh, you do become a student of, you know, I'm, I'm a big history nerd. So, and I love jumping into plays because you become a student of these things. You have to go and, and go to the house. You have to go and, and, and learn the things and, and really it expands who you are as a human um, and, and as an artist. And so, I just love adding those things to the basket, you know. One last big question, and then we'll close with rapid fire if that's all right. But just, I guess a big, when I say a big question, I don't, each one of you were at one time on Broadway before the pandemic. And obviously you're back now. And I just wonder, what are the biggest changes that you've noticed for yourself, for audiences, for Broadway as a community, just what, if anything, has changed? And anyone can jump who has something to say. I, I feel like the, there's been, I've been thinking a lot about this a lot recently. I mean, if, personally, it just reminded me what I already knew, which is that I just love live theater so very, very deeply. And I'm so grateful that it exists. And that it was one of the only things that was like so completely untouched by not only the pandemic, but just like times continue to change and like, things are artificial and like, all, like there's all just all, a lot of things that are just shifting and shifting and shifting. And there's not, you can't touch the experience of watching a, something live. Obviously the influences and the piece in itself, whatever can change, but the experience of going and watching something live is so completely untouchable that it's just really, that's why I feel like it's so sacred. But I was just going to say that I feel like there is such a encouraging care, not that this didn't exist already, but a, a care for human beings that are in a in a company before there is a care for them as artists. I mean, I think that the the care for them as artists is still there, and obviously there's a, a reverence and a respect for the work. But particularly in doing parade and with Michael Arden, our director, it's something that's dealing with a lot of difficult conversations. Anti-Semitism held in the same breath as as, as racism and anti-blackness and and Southern versus Northern and 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 what it means to be an American. It's just a lot of really difficult um, water to tread, and that would have been the case before all of this reckoning we've had as a society and now even more so people are afraid to tread that water. But like if anyone asks like, how can we hold any of those conversations together and hold space and sensitivity for all different experiences and affinity groups and types of people, like it is so possible because the experience that I've had in this rehearsal room is there's just so much care and time taken for making sure that we're all okay and healthy as people before we dive into the work. And when we're doing this harried, crazy thing, when especially city center, like things where every moment is costing thousands of dollars and, you know, it can get lost and, you know, things can get rushed and pushed and it can fall to the wayside in favor of just like getting to the finish line. But never was there a difficult piece of imagery, a, 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 a triggering prop. Uh, nothing, nothing ever came into the space without the time and space to prepare for it. The recognition that it was something difficult and the ability to have a conversation and hold each other first 
And I, I, I really think that that couldn't have happened without the kind of world reckoning that that has gone on. And I'm very encouraged by that moving forward and what, and what other experiences might be like. So it's sad, you know, whatever small silver lining this otherwise very traumatic couple of years we all experienced together was, was that we gave us, for better or for worse, a whole lot of perspective. And coming back into something that is as wonderful as this community is and doing something that is so irreplaceable like live theater, um, it's given us even more gratitude. That I thought we already had the ceiling, but it's given us even more gratitude to be able to get out there and to share these stories. And it's also given us a filter for the other noise that comes with being in this universe, um, an added layer, because th this is a, this is a, you know, we're in a bubble, we're in a theater every day and there's a lot of chatter outside and there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of other things that can sometimes make its way in to the, the sacredness of where we are. And coming out of that time where we had Zoom and no connectivity and, you know, just all those other things, um, it's, it's allowed me at least to, um, to focus even more on what matters and focus even less on what doesn't and to be able to make that space even more sacred than it was in the past. And how about just in terms of even like, I don't know if self-care is the right word, but self-preservation. I mean, Jessica, you, what was it? The Met Gala you were a, a master? Uh, it was like So basically we were testing every day yeah. on our show. And if I, if one of, even if you had no symptoms, if you tested positive for COVID, you're out a week. Yeah. And I was meeting people, I was meeting people at the stage door who flew from Shanghai and flew from all over the world. And so to go, to be out of the show for a week, it just felt like it was so irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I was wearing the mask at the Oscars. At the Oscars. I got yeah, quite yeah. a lot of flack for that. No, no. A lot of people. Because they didn't realize why you're doing it. No, they thought I was making some political statement. Right, I don't know right, what they right, thought. Right. Like, I'm like, right. literally. Theater people knew. I know. Theater, we knew. Well, okay, good. Well, I'll tell you, the best thing is someone at the stage store gave me a mask that said, I'm on Broadway. Oh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, the SAG Awards, the Oscars, you know, a lot of people were just like, what are you doing? I just couldn't get sick. And I did. No. I haven't yeah. missed a show. That's great. Yeah. And uh, how about compositions of audiences? Are we seeing, does, does the audience... Uh, Age-wise, anything like that, does it look different to you, Corey? Well, it definitely, uh, for us, which I was really grateful for, yeah. because also uh, the students, yeah. the kids. Um, we had a show that <laughs> I was like, are you, are you sure we're bringing the kids to see this? Mm -hmm. But um, it isn't anything that they don't see when they walk out of their doors, especially here in New York. Um, and so it was important to expose them to that. But also these, this is a generation of kids who in the past few years were deeply affected. I mean, we all were affected, but students, school, Zoom, like all of that kind of stuff, deeply affected by the lack of community and lack of um, uh, interaction. And so some of them, it was their first time in, in seeing a, a, sh a show ever, a play on Broadway, off Broadway, whatever. And so this season, I think coming off of, and, and a bit of last season as well, but just coming off of COVID and how detrimental that was to a, a lot of us in mental health. It was just great to see them see this season of shows. And it was such a good season. This yeah. season. I mean, it's such a good season. It's a robust Very season, good. but we're not where we were. Yeah. We're not at the numbers that we were pre-pandemic. In, pre in terms of attendance, we're not. And I think, you know, we're still looking for the audiences to not be afraid, you know, like come back to the theater um, the stories we're telling now and have told this season are so beautiful and they're so uplifting and, and enriching. And I think it's, um, yeah, that's the one message I think we really need to get out there is that 
for whatever reason, if people are hesitating, um, you don't need to. <laughs> like it, it's it's there's only one place to get this particular kind of entertainment, this kind of experience. And I think a lot of people during the pandemic started to rely on other mediums um, and became very comfortable, you know, getting everything they needed from a screen. And this is not what 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 we're doing. This is a this is live human interaction. This is an exchange of energy with an audience that you can only get in live theater. And it's and it's a it's a it's a seminal human experience that well, there's a lot of yeah, research please. about yeah, loneliness being yeah. this new epidemic. And yeah. I do think that it isn't just the isolation of the pandemic, but it's also the dependency on screens that we forget how to be human with each other. And that is the thing that I love so much about what you said, Ben, about, you know, there's nothing like, it's so primitive what we're doing. It's so, it's, it's, it's so analog and yes. <laughs> that we stand on stage and we tell stories and we sing with our voices and we, we, or we, t or we speak truth, you know, it's just a really, um, I think the the necessity and the the essential nature of that. I really believe this is essential, soul giving, soul saving, life saving work that happens on stage. I really believe that. Well, and I, I this may seem like a trivial thing to bring up now, but the Tony Awards, the fact that the Writers Guild has now said they will not picket the Tony Awards, is could really be a lifesaver for. A number of shows, right? I mean, it's. Can, does anyone want? I, we have two former hosts, I believe, of the Tony Awards here, Sarah, and Josh. We have uh, a lot of people who have been there before, and you guys all see what a difference it makes if you can put on a marquee or your advertisements and anything that a show is Tony nominated, Tony winning, all of that, and especially if it can be seen on the national broadcast, right? Um, does anyone have any thoughts about just the the difference that's going to make to, to actually have a televised Tonys this year. I think it's amazing yeah. that we actually get to go through with this, but I do think it highlights something that our friend Lynn Manuel Miranda probably reached out to you and talked about this with you about the ham for hams. He's, he's like, you know, what it really highlights is that we are too dependent on the Tonys being the only broadcast system for this industry. We have to get more creative about other ways that people can access our beautiful program. Like that is, that's, there just has to be more tributaries for eyeballs Agreed. to be able to know what's happening. And so they want to engage. Think, I also think about the, the fact that it, it impacts regionally too, because a lot of mm. these, you know, not everyone has the time or the financial yeah. ability to get to New York. Yeah. And so when people see these shows or know about these shows, you can bring them to and these incredible companies and yeah. keeps other people employed and, yeah. you know, to those towns as well. And so I think there's a great um, uh, uh, need and desire for that and, and finding a different way to to push that um, regionally. And I keep thinking about the young Jessicas and the young Ben's and yeah. young Corey's, young Josh's, the keys, Sarah's. Like, did we not all watch those yeah, we sat on the floor and, and, and aspire to be a part of this community. And those, the future is with those young people, um, working with many of them now. And it's just, <laughs> that's who I care about. You know, yeah. I, I want those young people to feel like they have access, even if it's okay. It's not like 
widely viewed or whatever. It is by the people who are going to make those stories. Yes. Those are the people yeah. uh, who are going to tell the stories. So I think it's important. To and that as reason. a queer person, the, my first, I know it's like the small, but my some of my very first queer representation I remember seeing and really sinking in was when the when they show the nominees with whoever their person is that they've brought. So many of the theater artists have same sex, you know, people partners. that they're with, that partners that, and it might, you know, even early on, as you know, as as recently as like the late '90s when I was a kid watching the Tonys, it might not have been as overt as it could be now. But even then, just seeing, you know, one of the guys nominated for a musical holding his man's hand or giving him a kiss when it's, you know, they're saying his name, it's like I remember like the visceral impact of like little moments like that. So I, I'm just very grateful that the show gets to go on in any in any form for the queer people that are going to be watching the little queer kids who I know are looking forward to this particular thing and only get it once a year, but agreed that it shouldn't be just a once a year kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, Jess, did you want to say something? Yeah, no, I mean, basically, yes, I used to record the Tonys on my VHS. I don't know if everyone in this room knows what the VHS player is. <laughs> and I would watch it throughout the year. I used to get American Theater Magazine yeah. and I dreamed of someday living in New York with my people. Uh, and I love being on stage, but I also love being in an, in an audience mm -hmm. and watching these productions. And I think also the beautiful thing about the Tonys is for the people who don't have a lot of finances to be able to go see, you know, uh, the theater at a certain point. I mean, for me, it created a love of theater that then I would go to community productions. You know, I'd watch the Tonys and then we would do a best of Broadway review in Sacramento, California, <laughs> you know? So it, it really, I think it's so important to have that outreach to keep live theater uh, accessible to, to, to people who can't afford it. Totally. I just want to say one more thing. Yeah. As Corey said earlier, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. Like, we're only as good as what we're given to speak and sing. So, of course, we're all supportive of this strike and we want them to succeed and be paid what they deserve. Um, we're all we're all members of multiple unions here, so I feel like it's um, it's incredibly, uh, it's gritty, and it's it's tough what they're doing, but um, we are behind. Some them. of you, uh, if and when you get up there, will it might be something that comes up, I imagine. So anyway, it's unscripted, so it's unscripted. Yeah. <laughs> Is anyone yeah. here in the WGA? Yeah. No, Sarah, you are. Did you think this is how it would shake out? In terms of that, that they would um, kind of grant essentially a, a not a waiver, but I'm so grateful that this is how it shook yeah. out. I think, and I don't blame the WGA. I yeah. think that they're the the, you know, it it needs to be a strict sort of protocol. But I do think that there are a lot of playwrights that are TV writers. Like it's just, they they can't make a living right. Being a playwright, so they have to go to other mediums. So I think it it ends up inadvertently punishing the wrong community, and it's a community that really needs eyes on it, and it's eyes for the right reasons. I think right. so. I'm I'm so thrilled, and I think, you know, it's going to be. It reminds us that it isn't really about the script. That that's this night is about celebrating theater as a medium, as a community as a collection of stories and artists who, who bring this to life and want to, you know, project that into the world. It's not, it's so, it doesn't feel like a competition. It really, really doesn't. It feels like a celebration to me. Like that is how, which I think is so coming from music. I always was so 
sort of um, destabilized by the way music can feel competitive. Like there isn't, it's a scarcity mentality, like there's not enough for everybody. And I think because because theater has to move and change so much and nothing lives forever, I mean, Phantom is gone, you know what I mean? Like nothing lives forever here. So we just, you, you can't sustain the delusion that that you're actually in competition with anybody. We're just celebrating incredible performances. When we were about to host it, I reached out to Corden, who hosted it, and yeah. said, "Like, is this going to be the nightmare? Like, is this going to be what is this? What are you advice? You, you asked after you agreed to host. You uh, ask no, no, before. before I oh, before. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just kind of said, like, what am I getting myself into? Is right. Gonna, any advice? Right. And he said, you know, for every other award show, um, there is that feeling, and it's like everybody's there with their entourages of fifty people. And, yeah. and when you're in front of those people at the Tonys, every single person in those seats have wanted it since they were five years old, <laughs> yep. and they've worked their asses off to to be there. And and like Sarah was saying, there isn't this co- competitive a feeling. Everybody there is so excited that the night is going to project what we all love about this world to so many people, and everybody's just supportive of that. And I know that I speak for everybody in this room that we, we can't wait to do what we do on that night for the next Sweeney watching, the next yeah. Baker's wife watching. You know, we, like we, we're, we're- The next Nora. The next Nora watching, <laughs> absolutely. Because they're, they're watching, they're watching. And you know, they were us. And I guess it's not a coincidence. I will say as somebody who covers all the different award shows and many of you have been at them, this is definitely the most entertaining to watch. Yes, yeah, you guys sure. are actually yes. doing what you are yeah. being recognized yes. for doing. I mean, it is the best of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you have a good time. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is, a, it is a hell I remember because this is a. I mean, VHS. I remember they used to do scenes from plays. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course. Are you yeah. volunteering to do that? No. no. Oh, I love it. I think we should bring it back. Do, at the Tony's, they used to do a scene from a play. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. Viola Davis. Yes. I, like, I remember yes. them doing that. Yes. Right. Or King Hadley just being like, oh, oh yeah. and you lean in. Yes, yes. exactly right. That's great. All right, last minute here. Just please shout out first thing that occurs to you. Excluding family, the person whose attendance at one of your performances of the show you're nominated for has meant the most to you? Lee Volman. Mary Beth Peel. Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Cool. Uh, let him carry you. Nice. Joanna Gleason came. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, most unusual thing in your dressing room for this show? Ooh. A neon Jewish star sign. And my walls are pink. <laughs> my dog. Your dog. Okay, cool. My original uh, rehearsal music from Sunday in the Park with George. Wow. Taking it. Same, same. Uh, same back in the day when Maddie Pincus used, used to be the music copyist yeah. by hand and do and the music folios for rehearsals were about 11 by 13. But again, okay. in the actual theater where you did that. For Correct. Me. And it's framed. It's cool. I have pictures of actresses on my wall. Anyone you can specific? Viola Davis, Lee Volman, Isabel Huppert, Catherine Deneuve. Nice, nice. Vanessa um, Redgrave. Nice. I kind of collect, my grandfather collected pennies, and every now and then I find like a lucky penny, and I've got a Victorian era uh, penny in my dressing room from the time period this week. Oh, that's cool. Um, I have a picture of uh, just an old print of, um, original print of Grace Jones, and that's just such yeah. a, it was just such a. <laughs> Most annoying thing that audiences did at one of your performances of this show. Oh, I've got something. At the, towards the end of the show, Torvald says to Nora, where are you going? I say to take off my costume. And when I say to take off my costume, one woman, I think she probably was deep in the cups, <laughs> yelled out to Aryan, you take off your costume, buddy. Oh, my <laughs> God. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Probably oh, cut her off. Yeah. Cut her off. <laughs> She's at the bar. Yeah. Just going. You really, that's where you, you go to the doll's house to get drunk. That's it. Heckle the men. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, it's pretty interesting right. that the women are heckling the men. Yeah, actually. right, yeah. right. Something <laughs> to be examined. Yeah. I mentioned, but someone played the entirety of Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran in their purse. <laughs> On their phone. On like a good volume. Uh, like a hearable volume. But they didn't hear it. She, I guess, bless her heart, didn't, um, <laughs> Didn't hear it and didn't notice it at all and just kind of watched the scene int- attentively um, and it played for a good full minute. Did it change the way you approached your character? <laughs> it made me scream a lot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I feel like people like that actually know it's playing, yeah. but they don't want to be the person to like do Acknowledge the, that yeah, it was so them. They're going right? to sit there and let it go. Pretend it's not happening. I remember uh, at the very end of the play uh, that, that it's all about the inheritance, you know, that that stocking yeah. that the brothers are... are talking about the entire play and at the very end it rolled off the stage oh. and he has to give it to me and the, it, the whole thing was on the stocking oh, oh. and it rolled off the stage and this kid picks it up and Yaya sort of kind of <laughs> goes over like you know and thinks the kid is going to put it back and the kid's just like <laughs> nice. to his friends and he was just like no I'm keeping this this is my souvenir oh my and God. we didn't get it back Yaya had to go and find like a piece of paper to <laughs> wow. like the theater this uh, is so bad. I'm like God. You hear a lot about like jukebox music, like it's people singing along. Yeah. With Sweeney, it's kind of a card show to sing along to. Yeah. But like people who like love this score a lot. There was a guy that we noticed was very, very largely conducting the whole show <laughs> in his seat. And um, probably more annoying for our music director than right, anyone else. Right. But um, but yeah, he was he was into it. I mean, I, I, we respect the panelists. We um, get a lot of young people who yeah. come to see Kimberly Akimbo. And sometimes way too young. But yeah, we've had mothers holding three-year-olds, oh. which is like way, way too young to see Kimberly Kimbo. But uh, there was a group that uh, came from Lodi, New Jersey, and that's a town that's referenced in the show. And every time we said Lodi, <laughs> they <laughs> stood up and screamed. Every and, and in the last scene, there's, you know, it starts to get serious. In the second act, it starts to spiral uh, downward pretty rapidly. And so we had to, you know, we were making up ways to say the lines without Lodi so oh that we, gosh, yeah, so that we wouldn't get a laugh. That's yeah, great. Yeah. It wasn't annoying, but it was um, uh, impactful. Jennifer Lopez came to the show and she came in a little bit late and she was wearing a full sparkly one, like a onesie. <laughs> I think it was, it was a light color and she came in with an entourage and she came in kind of like a little bit late. And it was just, so, I was like, well, and Jennifer Lopez is watching the show now. <laughs> just like distracting because I'm a fan and I'm like, now I'm looking at Jennifer Lopez <laughs> walking hilarious. down the aisles. <laughs> Last two. Um, if you could snap your fingers and make it so, what would be the ideal number of performances of your show per week? We're doing seven, and that's yeah. like that's a good number for me. Happy <laughs> like, with that. That's, that's, I, I I think that that's that's a good that's a good amount of time. And it wasn't really even like for the singing. It was like there's just a lot of yelling, and I just just was like that's I was thinking of protection, but it has worked out for everybody. We really like that. Number. So seven though is. One two day and five two, or whatever. So we're two two, like two on Wednesday, two on Saturday, but we start on Wednesday. So, so yeah, you though, again, you can do whatever you want here. Do you want one every day, or are you do you like having? I am a weirdo who likes being marinated for that second show. Okay, I really like I I like the I. I'm, I like just holding up in my dressing room and playing my Nintendo for three hours and then like drinking tea and feeling like I've done the show. So I'm not worried about right. it. I can do the show right. um, like I am every other day. And I feel like then I can just, I, I just coast. So I, I'm weird. I like the two shows. Okay. Anyone else? 
Mine might not be popular, but I'm happy to do eight shows because wow. I know theater needs it. <laughs> and we're so, so I'm happy to do it, but um, I would prefer to do five shows. Five. <gasps> yes, of this play because I have like a, a emotion, a craze. I, I'm like crying yeah. for an hour. So yeah. it's it's for to do that eight times a week feels a so lot. So five on five different days or some two on days? On different days would be great. Okay. Listen, that'll never happen. And I love the theater so much. I'm very happy to do eight. Right. But if it's my personal yeah. preference, <laughs> That's what if someone there. else wants to buy out the yeah. other shows for right. me, some benefactor, right. I'm into You're it. You're available. Okay. <laughs> I think six is a good number. I'm actually trying to talk to the union about this because I'm a counselor, an equity counselor, and I think we need to move away from eight a week. I really do. I think it's too much. Mm -hmm. But I know that it's the it's the financial formula for now. Yeah. But I think we need to rethink it. And I think seven is more humane. But I think in this particular show, I think one a day would be would be good for moi. Now, <laughs> I'm doing eight and I enjoy them, but... Um, it's a lot. It is. Sorry. I think seven would be a sweet spot, six or seven. I really think you need a week, you need two days off in a row. I agree. I re even if off. I could deal with a seven show, I think it's relatively inhumane to only get one day off because it's just- The rest of the world gets two days. The, the rest of the world, it is just, of, yeah, it's not fair to be expected exactly. to rest and rejuvenate because you're so exhausted. And by balance, we need and balance we with our family. Yes. Yeah. 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 Makes you strong yeah. family, that, yeah. that is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, do we, I, okay, I, I also agree. I think, here's the thing, I'm also a bit of, I like the idea of eight shows because I like that that's the thing that sharpens the muscle. Like that, that's why Broadway isn't easy. That's why the people who do this are able to do it and they are clinicians and technicians and just, you know, um, intuitive. But <laughs> I think given this season, again, all of, a lot of our shows are so heavy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to have to be asked to do that sometimes, like two shows, two times a week. Correct. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's such a task and it's such an ask. And then to have only one day off, which we then also have to work exactly. on those days. And today is our day off, Today's just for everyone yeah. listening at home. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, really? And, and well, families. Better today than on a day yeah. when you had a yeah. show. Yeah. But, but you have yeah. families and you have to yeah. just, you know, do laundry or like, you know, like yeah. there are things that, um, but I, but I appreciate the rigor. Yeah. And I think there's still some work to be done there. Right. And, and, and the holiday up. season is insane. Yeah, yeah nine shows others who keep us very, very yeah. sane throughout this. I'm very yeah. patient. Yes. <laughs> ben, did you have a number? I, I, I like the seven. I mean, I would go back in time and do three Evan Hansen's a week, not eight. Yeah. But, um, but I, I think seven. I mean, I, 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 if, if the, if it's like a Sophie's choice between the two, I would, I would keep the only one day off, but I would chuck the Wednesday matinee so far out of the ocean <laughs> and never. Do well, it actually, again. so that's a, just. Very, I know I said one last question, but just a follow-up to that one. If you're an audience member and you're, this is, a, I guess, a really tough question, but like, what's the show you're that they should the put last? Show, the worst what's show? the Saturday one that you night. should skip? Saturday night. Do not Sa Don't come out Saturday no. night? No. Is I that when you're most burned out? Oh, I love Saturday yes. night on Broadway. Uh, yeah, yeah I like exciting. Friday night on Broadway. Burned. I'm burned. You're burned. I'm crispy. I like a crispy Friday piece of bacon. When, <laughs> crispy piece of bacon. So, all right. Well, I, that's, avoid, I appreciate well, Avoid Tuesdays. Avoid you're Tuesdays. You're just like, Ellie. Coming back wow. into it. Like, great on it. Oh, no. Tuesday, I'm like, what? Day is it? Like, where I'm like, am I'm I? like, what show is yes, it? Yes, what show? Because I've forgotten, you know, like you yeah. just go back and you go, okay. 
<laughs> reset. So okay. it's better once you're really on the on the wheel. I love a fri- a good Friday yeah, night. Mm, a Shabbat show. Yeah. Well, a Shabbat show. <laughs> I don't like Fridays. I like Thursdays and I like Saturdays. No, there's a crew that no Sunday, everyone. Right, right, that's true. Thursdays Every, everyone who's listening. So that helps. Thursday yeah. is always pretty But come jolly. any night. Like, yeah, come of course. Come you get a grace. There's no wrong show. Every <laughs> show is consistent and perfect. Come anytime. Yeah. There you go. All right. Thanks for coming to Sweeney Todd. We appreciate you. <laughs> Last one. Put it out into the universe. If you could play any role on the stage in the future, which would it be? And I believe that Corey has an answer I've read elsewhere. Yes. Please. It's Sweeney Todd. Really? Is it really? Wait, which one were you? Which I heard you? Sam Cooke. Oh, Sam Cooke. Oh, no. Well, actually, okay, first of all, I do want to sing. <laughs> I do want to sing, but okay. I, I've been telling do. people, I've been telling people that, like, I, I can't wait to come see Sweeney Todd because I'm obsessed <laughs> with that show. So, okay. yes, Sweeney Todd. Um, yeah. And I'm also Josh, you know, here's my guy. Yeah. But uh, Sam Cooke has been uh, just such a... Um, a dream, dream role for mm-hmm. me. And so we've been thinking about how to get it to screen and, te- you know, all of that. And I'm like, it might be a good idea. So to, it is brewing. To cook in on, on the stage and to see sort of what happens with it. And so um, such a tragic story, how his young life, but like so impactful. So Okay, so that's Corey. And that's a, yeah, people yeah. are hopefully listening. Uh, uh, <laughs> Jessica. I have one. Um, Alma from Summer and Smoke. Tennessee Williams said uh, that it was the part that he felt the closest to, and I think it's the, it, she's not, it's not performed that much that play. I love it so much. Okay, George, it's something to work with George. Yeah, since yeah. I was a wee wee child. That's always been one. Before I leave the earth, I will do it. Okay, great. <laughs> I would love to do another original show. Mm. Yeah, I like I like working on new pieces. So. Cool. Anybody out there who's got... (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Josh, close us out. Um, I I so love working with Dave Malloy. A great comment. And I'm always fascinated with what he's going to cook up next. So um, I would say, like Victoria said, something new, something something that, you know, I could dive into and be the first, you know, like Len did for Sweeney all those years ago. Um, I also really loved his octet. And I love... It kind of brought me back to like my choir days of like just all the harmonies and all the things that that cast has to be a part of in the ensemble of that. So I would say something probably in that. Nice. Well, on behalf of The Hollywood Reporter and everybody listening, I cannot thank you guys enough for taking, as we've just established, your one day off and sharing <laughs> some of it with us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And uh, we will make sure that if people didn't know about any of these shows before, the ones that they can still go and see, sadly, we no longer have Into the Woods or Top Dog Underdog, but you can see uh, it on tour. You can see, you it, can see it on tour. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When do you guys close? I'm closing June 10th. What June 10th. Close? Yeah, this is good to yeah. know, actually. Yeah. Doll's House, its last performance is June 10th. Okay. Kimbo never. We're never, never closing. Never right. closing. <laughs> Kimberly and Kimbo will run right. forever. <laughs> Sweeney Todd? Uh, Mid January. Mid June. Me. I okay. We'll go on after that. Okay. And Parade? Parade, August 6th, Heart Stop. All right. Get going, people. Get your tickets and. Uh, Thank you guys. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.